Caught Offside with Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. Oh, yes. Caught Offside from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Andrew Gunling, J.J. Devaney. What up, brother? Happy birthday, sir. Oh, thank you very much. I believe you're not a big birthday guy. No, no, not really. No, that's not. uh, I mean, I'm not anti, but I've (laughs) never been one to like, you know, sometimes people will will talk about their birthdays or all the things they're doing. And uh, I don't know. To me, it's just not just not me. Even this conversation, I now feel uncomfortable. Yeah. In the 10 seconds we've been talking about it. Do you feel um, death's clammy hand on your shoulder? Always, but that's just a regular day of the week. <laughs> you know, I, I did. I, I knew you were going to bring this up because you you're a good friend. You texted me early this morning yep. to say happy birthday, which was which was nice. Um, and so I knew that we were doing a pod today. So I then knew that you were going to bring it up. And so I just <laughs> like I'm not going to tell you this story because I'm looking for any sympathy. I just want that out there straight away before I even say any of what I'm about to say. But have some ready. <laughs> Because I know how you paint me on this show, like I'm the living embodiment of Eeyore, that I'm just kind of like this doom and gloom guy, and like doom is always lurking around the corner. And so I'm you have a low opinion of yourself and of life, but but you amplify it, which is good. That's fine. It works. Oftentimes, the the picture you paint of me aligns with reality. There's an episode of The Office, JJ, that I was thinking of as things were happening this morning, which I will describe in a moment, where Michael Scott, it's his birthday, and he's having a terrible day, and he's reflecting on other bad birthdays that he's had in the past. When I was seven, my mother hired a pony and a cart to come to my house for all the kids, and I got a really bad rash from the pony. And all the kids got to ride the pony, and I had to go inside, and my mother was rubbing cream on me for probably three hours, and I never came outside. And by the time I got out, the pony was already in the truck and around the corner. So that was my worst birthday. So I think of that because, <laughs> A, the picture oh. you painted me, and B, uh, so this morning, uh, my kids, they wake up, Jack comes in, wishes me a happy birthday, which was very nice, and then Luke comes in, he asks for some milk, I give him some, Luke has never, other than when he was a baby and babies just kind of spit up, he's never actually thrown up in his life. This morning at about 6.30 a.m., I gave him some milk. He took it. He uh, he put down the cup. He leaned over, and he threw up all over me. Wonderful. I, Jack and I flew out of bed, and I thought, okay, that, <laughs> like, what? So he obviously is not feeling well. I feel that's why I say I don't. I don't want sympathy in this story. He's two and a half. Like I feel bad for him. Um, I only bring it up because this is ha- this happens to be happening on my birthday, and you paint the picture of me as of course it would happen on your birthday. Then I'm getting ready to take Jack to the bus stop. We're running behind, halfway out the door, second time of the morning, throws up on me again, <laughs> <laughs> and I think okay, this is just. This could only it's on happen. Pur- it's on purpose. I think he's doing it on purpose. Uh, yes, this could only happen today, and JJ will love this. Uh, so that's where we're at as we now begin recording here just a, a short while later. Your but thank you. pukey birthday. Yep. That is where we're at. Two uh, wardrobe changes later, and I think he's fine. He went to the doctor, and I think he'll, he has a stomach bug, and they said he might even be able to go to school tomorrow. So 
all good. But uh, yeah, poor guy. Watching your kid be sick is like they're just not. He was lying on the floor. He does not do that. Like he just laid down. I put a show on for him, and I went to the bathroom. I came back, and he's just lying on the floor. It's just like a sad sight for a parent to see. But so that's where we're at on this 38th birthday. Uh, JJ, whew, what a what a weekend of footballing action that we had. Uh, we felt compelled because this is going to be a dual podcast week, obviously second legs of Champions League semifinals. There was always going to be a pod midweek to talk about those. But because of some of what went down over the weekend, we felt that we really had to come in and do an additional one here on this Monday morning. Should we get right to it? I suggest that we do. We put the puke to one side and get on with the podcast. So, JJ, a wise man once uttered the words, started from the bottom, now we're here. Uh, we will do the same. Let's go to the bottom of the table and begin there first. That, to me, is probably the most compelling story coming out of the weekend. People may disagree, but I'll start by so. I'll start by simply saying North City, are, are, it's over. We've been kind of talking about that for some time. We kind of put it on the back burner because it just felt like it was an inevitability. They are relegated. This is their sixth time being relegated from the Premier League. That breaks a tie with this club for most relegations in Premier League history. Uh, West Bromwich Albion. That's right. That's right. Boing, boing, baggies. You don't get that nickname for nothing. Um, So, yeah, that it's it's over and done with. And we can kind of move to what the big story was, and that was – uh, Everton and Burnley continuing to duke it out against each other and now bringing Leeds into the fight. Let's start at Goodison, or even the night before Goodison. Um, I saw people tweeting videos of 2.30 in the morning, Saturday, or Sunday morning technically, fireworks going off outside the Chelsea team hotel. There was lots of um, American Twitter loving it for the conch nature of it all. Um, or the uh, the also the Galatasaray right. any team in Turkey nature of it, and these were like these were this was Fourth of July stuff yeah. from a firework perspective. This was U.S. men's national team winning a World Cup qualifier in Orlando with qualifiers still to play type firework action outside your hotel room, outside of a hotel room. Yeah, uh, so that's how it started, which I thought was really something to behold. But JJ, the the images from the next morning were the ones that really uh, that I really found to be awe-inspiring. Um, it's very easy, and I'm not saying it's wrong, but it's very easy for fans to boo when things are going badly for their team or get right. down on their team. And I understand it. Look, I come from a city that is as sports-crazed as any— I'd put Philadelphia up against any city on earth in terms of how passionate it is about sports. And it's notorious for booing. And I get it. And I've done it to my own team. So I I understand why fans do it, but it takes something really unique and special when things are going horribly wrong to do what Everton supporters did in the build-up to that game on Sunday against Chelsea, to come out and throw what felt like just one of the all-time great impromptu pep rallies to try to get behind your team and show them that even though... You're in this situation. We're all in it together. We're always going to be behind you. We believe in you. The message that it sent, it had to have lifted those players. It just fans wonder sometimes, or I wonder as a fan, what what like what impact are we actually making? I'm here, you know, I'm rooting for my team, but like, do they block it out? Does it matter? Watching what I watched with those fans as the team bus was pulling up to Goodison, 
You cannot mm. convince me. No one will ever convince me that that didn't in some way impact those players leading into that game and contributed in some way to them going out there and winning 1-0. Obviously, the players have to do it. I'm not trying to take it off of the players and say, way to go, fans. But I just, I've got to believe that that sort of spirit that those fans showed before that game did something to lift those players before that moment. Oh, absolutely, Andrew. And uh, the supporters... Like the cauldron atmosphere that they created was was unbelievable, and I think that that element definitely transfers onto the field. I've said this before: John Giles, the great, the former Leeds United player who won you know championships, played in European Cups, he didn't believe in any of that. He used to be able to just methodically get on with his game, and he said the crowd never never impacted things. But he tells a story about the crowd at Goodison Park in the 60s turning on the opposition. Uh, He was playing for Leeds at the time. I think it was the late 60s. And he said that Goodison Park was the one place where you felt like there was a real chance this crowd en masse was going to get onto the field and play the game for Everton. That's what he felt. And that's that's the kind of backdrop they created for the game at the weekend. Now, as brilliant as they were, it really, really helps when you have a team in the kind of headspace that both the Chelsea attack and their manager are currently in. You know, that really does help. And in, in particular, when you have uh, someone as experienced as Azpilicueta making the mistake he did, that, that opened the door. And after that, as good as the Pickford saves were, you just knew Everton were going to win this game. Yeah, here are, uh, here's a little bit of what it sounded like. Peter Drury was on the call. Here's to Maury Gray, there's Richarlison, and Everton have their breakthrough goal. It's in by Mount, Loftus-Cheek, Rudiger, wow, what a block. He's taken it hard, it has hurt him badly, but it is a simply magnificent save. Phil Goodison Park, breathe. They're alive, they're still alive. Whew. Are they ever? Now, JJ, you talk about the Chelsea attack and the headspace they're in. So you are right. It, it hasn't been great. However, sometimes it can't just be, oh, they're not playing very well. Some of what Jordan Pickford did in well, that game. I didn't game, say it just was. I, I know, I know. But some of what Jordan Pickford did in that game, sometimes I just feel like you have to tip your cap to a guy. 100%. And just say he was just, he was just better. The first save is a. I say the first save. He he made saves before that. The first one that we remember, where he it's it hit the inside of the post and then the inside of the other post, and he gets back to the center of his goal and makes a save, is a great save. I actually think the face save, mm-hmm. where he comes out and spreads himself like that and just completely takes the force of the shot in his head, was an even better save. It's a save of the season. It's unbelievably good, and underrated amongst those amongst the three saves that I can really fo- hone in on is his save from Kovacic late on mm-hmm. at his near post where he has to get down low and get, in getting down low he doesn't parry it back into the danger zone it goes goes out to to his right or left and away from danger another brilliant save and again I will never be <laughs> the most uh the most uh, you know confident person when I see Jordan Pickford going goal like that he's going to be great because 
to me, if I'm a defender and I look at him, you know, he's, he's in a, you know, a constant state of agitation. And I want someone calmer behind me. I want someone more Zen, but even still, we're he's all like that though. Um, not, not all, but a lot of like, I remember Tim Howard. Maybe it's an Everton thing. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, maybe it's a thing where you're a goalkeeper who's more often than not on the, on you know, you're getting a lot of more, a, a lot of more action than, say, maybe Allison or someone like that. So, you know, that kind of state of something's about to go wrong, I have to be on high alert, mm-hmm. uh, plays into that a little bit. But he had, a, he had an absolutely outstanding game. I wanted to talk to you a bit more about the crowd, though, Andrew. Okay. Because I read something, and I'm really curious to get your take on this. So Dominic King was writing in the Daily Mail about, well, he used the term synergy. And apart from it being, a, a, you know, an awful kind of corporate term, how's our synergy today? How are we feeling about our, you know, our, our aims, our key deliverables? Um, apart from the word itself, he, I think the angle he takes is interesting here. Um, I'll, I'll just read you this. But on occasions such as this, referring to the game, when there is synergy between the management and team and fans, there are few better places to watch football. It can lift Everton players to different heights and scramble the senses of opponents who are usually so measured. Hmm. He goes on later. He is the first manager, referring to Lampard, Evertonians have truly connected with since David Moyes. Hmm. He speaks in a way that makes them feel connected. He's getting good performances from those who were previously questioned. Look at Alex Awobi, And is here because he can see the potential. Crucially, Lampard isn't afraid to speak the truth. He knows the fans have done their bit, and it is up to him and his group to do the rest. Beating Chelsea was an outstanding start, but there is still more to be done. That's a fascinating alternative spin. Uh, the spin is that, isn't it? That really the connection is, I believe the connection is Everton fans love their football club and don't want to go to the bloody championship. <laughs> That's the synergy we're talking about here. Yeah, and what he I, refers to as one man's not afraid to speak the truth uh, is another man's dude, lay off some of these guys publicly. Yeah. Like it's it's I guess you can see it both ways. Like I have always said that I do not necessarily have a problem with a manager through the media trying to send a message to his team. The problem I had with Lampard is that it felt like he was pushing the button too often. And if you start to do that too often through the media, a, the message no longer gets through, and B, you lose the team. You can only do that so much when the moment really calls for it. So I get what he's saying. Yeah, not afraid to speak the truth, but like sometimes you have to find a different vessel in which to like present it to them. I really don't think this is about Lampard at all. I think Colonel Gaddafi could be on the sideline, and Everton fans would be getting, be- getting behind the team the same way they are now. They love their football club, end of, and, they see, and it's, they're in a, you know, a desperate moment. Um, and the idea that, I mean, look at Alex Awobi. Uh, mm. All right. <laughs> I have looked at him and he hasn't been great either. You know, I, I'm thinking of um, I mean, his, his performance at, at West Ham. But I'm not, I'm not, I'm, it's just, it's interesting to me because we always hear about it fr- from, from people back in, in, in the UK about the soft ride that certain managers get and, and, and how, their achievements are kind of vaunted. Like Everton have been and will probably continue to be bad under Lampard. It's just that they need to be just good enough to stay up now. 
Um, and I think it's the supporters, uh, if you want to use that term synergy, between the supporters willing their team on to make sure they don't go through the trap door. I don't think it's anything to do with Lampard, to be perfectly well, honest. Well, he, look, he's... <laughs> If they, yeah, but he's not inspired this. The, the tenor of this piece to compare him to Moyes, mm-hmm. who had, by the way, what twelve years at Everton, the the twelve most stable years of since since Howard Kendall. You know the idea that he is, he is the key figure in this. To me, is unbelievable. Yeah, and I think it would be. I have to agree with you. It would be disingenuous for you and I to say anything different. We've been. Mm-hmm. We've been pretty hard on him and honest, I think, about what's going on there. It has not gotten better since he arrived. Um, like they're they're 18th right now. They are still in the relegation zone. Yeah, they weren't when he got there. So you know, some of no. that is down to Burnley. Like, just we'll talk about them in a sec. But you know, Chelsea, Everton have been bad. Uh, so he, like, if if he's going to get praise for seeing them out of it he does need to get some blame for being for contributing to them being in this position now he inherited obviously a terrible situation there this has been building for years we've talked about that um but but he didn't he did not envisage it would turn out like this i guarantee you he did not right i i I, from what i see from the board and even in the, the the idea of appointing him if everton honestly thought that there was a possibility they'd be where they are right now they wouldn't have appointed him this is just kind of uh you know gone downhill just rapidly in in a short space of time it it has been on the way you're 100 correct it's been in the in in the mail as people like to say but it, it took a sudden turn um in the last few months yeah um so the thing that i was wondering about when this was over just like i'm watching this this emotion from this fan base that just God, they just it felt like they had just willed this to happen collectively. And I'm on Twitter and I'm seeing Roger Bennett in tears oh, at, at yeah, the full-time that was, whistle. That was an incredible video. And yeah. I clearly, um, I mean, whoever was taking it, I, I presume his wife, mm-hmm. uh, he did not want it because there was only a little bit of it. But he hugged her at the end, like in the last clip when he's crying. Oh, he did. He, he embraced. Yeah, that, so like that, that... you could see that what this was not just some game. Like this... No, for whatever no. reason, I mean, obviously, for whatever reason, there was a lot at stake here. The opponent being Chelsea, it just felt like this was a moment that Everton fans collectively came together and decided this ha- this changes today. They all made that decision, and sure enough, maybe it did. They went out and they beat a team that they never should be beating in this kind of season that they've had. So, But the thing I'm left wondering about is like this show of emotion from them, it kind of felt like we did it, you know. but they haven't. No, they have they not. They haven't. They're still, like, it's better than it was 48 hours ago, but they've got five games left, JJ. And so here's the thing that I worry about for Everton, and we're going to find out in these next five games just how much of a turning point this was. Was this a one-off uh, on a day where the fans contributed to this positivity, or is that is it really a sign of things to come? Here's the problem for them. They have been a disaster away from that place, away from Goodison so far this season. They have one, one road win all season. Six points total. The worst in the league. Norwich had nine on the road. Everton have five games remaining. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you if you don't know the, the fixture list, you're thinking right now as an Everton fan, please say most of them are at home. Please say most mm-hmm. of them. Three of the five are away from home. 
They don't get results away from there. They have to go to Leicester, Watford, and on the final day of the season, Arsenal. My God, by the way, how big might that game be at, at multiple ends of the table? It's still not – I don't want to try to rain on this this parade and this, the good the wave of good feelings that they are, are kind of filled with right now in the wake of the win, but it's this is not job done. So they've got Leicester away, Watford away, Brentford and Crystal Palace back-to-back at home on May 15th and May 19th. And then they 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 go to Arsenal. So those middle, you're right though. Those those middle two home games are just they're just enormous. I, what I would, it's hard it's hard to know. You could you, I think Leicester are a better team than them, but you you could see something there. Um, I think they they have to win at Watford. I expect they will. <laughs> uh, Brentford at home, Palace at home. And then Arsenal away. It's it's not easy. It really isn't easy. No. Um, and your question still stands. You know, the win against United didn't really yield any tur- uh, upturn in performances as vital as uh, three points as it was. Neither did the the late win against Newcastle. Um, they did get that that late point against uh, Leicester at home, which was important. Um, but yeah, it's. How do you how do you harness that emotion? And Lampard even talked about how the negativity has been on the road. Well, the the, the away fans are almost like they're the hardcore supporters usually, and and uh, yeah, they're you're going to get a real sense of where the club's at from them. Um, and I yeah I they are not out of this at all. But there's a few more teams looking over their shoulder now. Yeah, absolutely. And let's talk about a couple of those. We'll start with Burnley who they did it again, trailing in the 82nd. And not only do they come back and equalize, but they go on and they win it. Two goals in in like a four-minute window. Yeah, um, Unbeaten in their last four, three wins and a draw under this interim manager. Uh, I mean, did you ever imagine that they had this in them? What, what no. has changed here? Uh, I didn't think they had it in them. I thought uh, my initial reaction was the same as many other people's, was that, you know, changing Deich now with so few games left. What, what's going on here? But since Deich was fired, they're definitely playing much more football, Andrew. Passing the ball into midfield. Jackson is making really good decisions, like a tough decisions too. After an hour, he takes off the club's most expensive signing at 1-0 down, their striker, uh, Vout Veghorst, and introduces Ashley Barnes. And almost immediately, Barnes gets an opportunity, a chance. And suddenly they start rolling and they look like, you know, maybe there's there's an opportunity here. But um, it, it's interesting. You know, you're asking what has changed. Andrew, I've been on Lancashire Live again. Oh. And uh, Alex James is a columnist there. And he's been talking about Burnley and, and trying to give us some insight into what has actually changed. I'm saying they're playing more football, but, you know, what else is happening? Uh, here's Alex talking about changes in Burnley and while he Deich hadn't lost the dressing room it's clear his departure has prompted a revival and an improvement the squad weren't actively calling for change but now it's happened here there is a feeling at Gawthorpe the training park that it was required nothing has changed and everything has changed the day-to-day timetable remains the same but there's been a release of tension the club were able to film players coming out to training featuring the vocals of Josh Brownell something Deich didn't allow the players have been posting on social media in increasing numbers, something that Deich dissuaded. 
and was punishable by a spin on the infamous Burnley Wheel of Fortune. Basically, the Burnley Wheel of Fortune was, I think you spoke about it before. There was all, there's all these segments and forfeits on it. So if you break team code or team laws, you have to spin it to find out your punishment. On the pitch, the instructions from Jackson, Paul Jenkins, and Ben Mee have been to build on the platform Dice created while adding their own dash of panache to play on the floor, to be spontaneous and creative in attack and to play with a smile. Andrew, I couldn't help thinking when reading this report that Dice leaving a kind of, it's like when you see the day after, and I'm not calling Sean Dice a dictator, but you know, the day after those news reports you used to get a day after a dictator has been toppled, like the BBC World Report, Last night in Burnley, long-term leader Colonel Dyche was removed from power in a bloodless coup, prompting a release of tension from the population of Turf Moria. Practices such as social media posting that have been banned by the previous regime are now commonplace. People are smiling in the streets. You know, that kind of thing. Very interesting. You, you've gotten me kind of going down a, a rabbit hole now of this wheel. Right. I find it fascinating because so, it's do you want to hear some? Well, some I have sec- I have something here, an article from back in uh, 2018, where I think it's Stephen DeFore reveals some of what was on this wheel. Right. He says, so this is a few. This is four years ago. Oof. He says, for example, if you don't respect the rules, like being late, you have to spin some kind of wheel. Each letter represents a forfeit, like imitating Elvis Presley, going Ooh. for a swim in the river close to the stadium, create a boys band. Uh, or play the crossbar challenge, paying fifty pounds if you miss. It's in the atmosphere that I was having. It's in this atmosphere that I was having a good season. Um, yeah, and it's funny but- because, like, the way it's being positioned now is that like, what is what was Dice doing? Like, this is not right. But the way it's positioned back when they were doing well is that it almost created. It's the next. The next line, the paragraph after that from whoever wrote this article says, clearly Sean Deitch has managed to create a united dressing room through his unique way of keeping them in check. (laughs) So it's like when when things are going well, it's like, oh, like, let's spin the wheel. Like somebody does something, spin the wheel, funny punishment. We all have a laugh and like high fives, all good. When things aren't going well, like no one's laughing when this wheel gets spun and someone's got to sing Elvis Presley. Like no, then, I, then like, it's not, like maybe Dice needed to change his management techniques as things were change as things were changing around him. I would say I don't know. Yeah, I, th- I think that's so. a weird I, one I think, to me. I, I think it's more there's a there's a fresh voice in here. The I, they are doing football things differently. So that that if you tell a footballer that you know you actually might be good, you might be able to pass into midfield. That's a huge confidence builder. Whereas if you're telling, look, get it, leather it as hard as you can down the field to vote Veghorst and we're going to try and win the breaks. You know, that, that's that got a kind of a, a stultifying effect on it. Mm-hmm. I play in a, a soccer team that can't keep the ball and it's it's not good. You, you get pummeled, you get beaten. And Burnley are keeping the ball much, much better. Now, it was against Watford, who are bad and can't win at home and couldn't win in spectacular fashion, couldn't close out in this game. But I think uh, all jokes aside about the wheel and, you know, being the, the club being allowed to finally do social media work that all clubs do, even the most tightly, you know, like Manchester City and Liverpool, you see training videos like every week from them. The idea that Daesh didn't like this is curious to me. What, mm. what did he to hide? But there's... 
there's just a sense of freshness about Burnley. And um, and again, you know, it was brave to take Veghorst off. It was it was a good idea to bring Ashley Barnes. And, you know, they scored two good goals. New manager bounce. We'll see how long it lasts. Uh, when you fire your manager at this stage in the season, that bounce may only need to last till that the end of that season. They might have timed it just right. Um, it's going to be so close. And now we go from Burnley to Leeds as they have really? been – They've been kind of dragged back in it, and it's I don't I don't really know what they could be doing differently. Like they got dragged back into this because I think just the unforeseen of Burnley going on this run dragged them yeah. back into it. I don't know that it's necessarily Leeds have suddenly had this kind of disastrous patch of form befall them. You know, it's funny because they lost four nil to Manchester City, but you know the narrative coming out of it was that they actually played pretty well, that this 4-0 did not look like some of their earlier 4-0s this season. No, they had a, they had a period and a spell um, where they looked very, very good, and they looked like, well, these are going to give City a real game. But City were just, in the end, way too strong, Andrew. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it didn't help Cooper going off in the warm-up, not even making the field. Stuart Dallas, who's been pretty much an ever-present since Bielsa came in, gone. That um, was that was ugly. That was bad. Broken bone in his knee. So that's going to be a while. We hope he gets back um back to full fitness and back uh, out playing for Leeds again. But um I t- I said last week that Phil Hay wrote the piece where he wasn't sure because some of the performance had been iffy, a lot of the wins for Marsh had been late. And so Phil Hay was saying, I'm not sure how this has come about, but but we are where we are. Um and uh, it was interesting as well because we're, the, the theme of this podcast seems to be the influence of fans. Um, this is from Phil's piece uh, from yesterday, I think, uh, on The Athletic. Jesse Marsh punched the air as he and his players went around the pitch at full time uh, after the City game, mouthing, you are going to keep us up towards the stands. Um, their run-in is... Uh, yeah, it's it's... It's going to be interesting. Um, they have Arsenal away on May uh, this weekend. Sorry, uh, May eleventh. Chelsea at home. Brighton at home. Brentford away. That is that's not easy. That is not easy. No, um, but Arsenal, I mean, look, I, when, when you're where they are, what what are the games you could have said that would be that we would say, oh, that's actually pretty easy. Like, nothing. no, there's no what there's no Watford in there for them. Um, uh, they've got Brighton who they've got Brighton at home, which is, which is good, but Brighton, we know how sticky and tricky they can be. Uh, yeah, it's, um, it's all of a sudden, it seemed as if we'd stopped talking about Leeds in the relegation race. And like you said, they've been sucked back in. Um, and it is not beyond the realms that, that they go down now. No, um, no, that run, that that run in is Brentford away to finish. I don't yeah, that. and it's just funny because after this game, you know, like Gary Neville was talking about it, um, the the performance that they put in. He said, in talking about where they stand in in relation to the relegation picture, he said they do things that teams who go down do. They concede goals from set pieces. They're frantic in the final third, and they do lack composure. But I do think if they can put four performances in, like the one against Man City, it keeps them up. It's just yeah. a fascinating comment after a game where you lost 4-0. Yeah. I, I mean, Marsh came out with a statement. I, can't, I don't have it in front of me, but it was very like, you know, basically saying that there was a sense of positivity coming out of that 
beating at the weekend. And and he better hope there is for his team and that they can carry it. Uh, I, I Before we get off Leeds um, and the relegation race and all of this, I wanted to ask you, Andrew, the Athletic have, <laughs> have a fourth team in this mix here. Um, they're talking about... Uh, yeah. Well, they were actually. They were talking about. I suppose. I suppose after this now, Southampton, no. Brentford, so, Aston Villa. Yeah, no, they're, they're all they're all safe now. They were the the Athletic had a piece where they were talking about. You know that it. I suppose it was before this weekend when I read it. So maybe no, not. that the, they're all. I mean, they're all on forty points. They're fine. They're they're fine. I mean, yeah, there's six. There's there's six points between them, between Burnley and Southampton right now. So. Yeah, and that's just yeah. for 16th. There, there's eight between Everton and Southampton, Brentford, and Villa. Like, that's – no, they're – maybe my words will come back to haunt me, but, like, they're – No, I, I don't, they're I not don't part, see it either. They're not part of this picture, uh, no. not in any way to me. I have no idea how this is going to go. We can look at fixture lists, and, and this will kind of be a theme uh, into the next section where we talk about the top four. Fixture lists don't – I've kind of reached a point now – and I've been saying this a little bit, they don't mean anything to me really anymore. Like there is, there's just outside of City and Liverpool, um, there's just almost this randomness that has settled in to the latter stages of the season that has made this so fun and unpredictable. Um, And it's, I kind of just like, I'm I'm almost now of the opinion where I, I disregard the fixture list. Again, City and Liverpool excluded from this conversation because they right they don't lose, and that would be the ultimate in unpredictability uh, if if one of them were to go down, and that takes us into the top four conversation. JJ, where um, the status quo remained, Tottenham have bounced back from a couple ugly performances and had a really good one against Leicester, three one the final there. Um, Arsenal two one in a in one of their tougher remaining games at West Ham. There was question about what kind of side West Ham were going to put out as they are coming off of a Europa League semifinal and have a second leg still to come where they're going to have to overcome a one-goal deficit. They played their team, um, which I, I was a little surprised by, but they did, uh, and they fought. It was close, but uh, Arsenal, they survived that one. And so if you look at it as things stand right now, JJ, if you have any belief at all in the uh, the 538 SPI, Arsenal right now given a 70% chance of finishing fourth and getting the last spot. Tottenham at 30%. They play yeah, each other. Fi- they still play each other. Um, yeah. What but, a game that's going to be. Yeah, I know. But here's the thing about it, though, and it's why I mentioned before about City and Liverpool. JJ, we have a caught offside cup coming up uh, next weekend. That's right. Mm-hmm. That Arsenal-Tottenham game may not be quite as important as it feels right now. I don't want, over. I, I don't want to be Debbie Downer. But like, ta- please, it's, ta- uh, you're good don't, at it. They don't win there. Uh, since this podcast was created, they can't win games at Anfield. And you know they've put in some decent performances. They've had draw. They've managed to to get draws there. But they kind of they're kind of in that mode. I mean, a draw would be would be good for them in this case, I suppose, uh, if they can keep the deficit three or less because they own the goal differential battle with Arsenal. But it just I, you can't feel good about it. If you're Tottenham, um, no, certainly not. So. But um, yeah, I mean, the win probability is it's pretty high for for Liverpool. Um, but Conte, you know, Andrew, that's a manager who's got a few uh, tricks up his sleeve. You never know. Uh, but I, I, I kind of do agree at this point with your 
your general like you, you look at Liverpool at the weekend and the, the amount of changes they were able to make against Newcastle and still come out and win in what looked like a potential real banana skin on their on their closing uh, list of fixtures mm-hmm. doesn't doesn't inspire a lot of confidence in Arsenal or in Tottenham uh, going there and getting anything. I should mention uh, I watched Arsenal and West Ham. It was just the weirdest, most bizarre incident on on fifty two minutes. Ball down the right hand channel. Um, Ramsdale races forty yards out of his goal. Bowen just kind of plays it past him, um, and Ramsdale's just you know reckless from what I could see. <laughs> and Bowen definitely dives over, and Mike Dean comes comes over and books Bowen for simulation, and I'm like. He kind of had to simulate there. He, he had to go out, go out of the way. And so there was a debate after the game whether or not Bowen should have left his leg in because if Ramsdale makes contact, he's off. And I just thought it was so weird. And it, what was even weirder about it was Bowen didn't seem to argue the decision and Mike Dean seemed happy with Bowen's response. You know, there was no, there was no back and forth over it. There was no complaints. There was no crowding around him, around Mike Dean, really. It was, it was utterly bizarre. And I... I think just because uh, Ramsdale doesn't make contact with him uh, doesn't mean that it's uh, it's not reckless. Yeah. But but by the way, before, because I, I can hear the footsteps of a thousand Arsenal fans thundering towards social media to get angry about the fact Arsenal, I felt, deserved their win. They were the better side and they were the better side going forward, certainly. But I thought that was thought that was just a curious incident. Yeah, that is because I mean I've seen like the you know a million screenshots suddenly appear on Twitter after something like this, and like you can see what's happening. I mean, like Ramsdale comes in with his studs up, yeah. headed towards Bowen's ankle, and Bowen dives over him. Um, like I'm I simulation think, though. I think right. self preservation. Yeah, I, I think that that's a yellow that I would rescind. Yeah. Um, I don't know that that means Ramsdale needed to go, uh, but uh, yeah, that feels like a harsh yellow. And I wonder yeah. if Bowen even realized how bad it was. Like maybe he didn't. Maybe he just saw this guy is is slide. It's a, here comes a slide tackle. I'm going to dive over his leg. He yeah, may not. Have, he may not have even realized in real time that it was a studs up challenge. Uh, so he he might have known. Yeah, I, there was no contact. I di- I did dive. So. When he was, looks back was, at it, he might think, boy, it's a good thing I did that. It was dealt with very, very amicably. Yeah. It was all very friendly. All right. Well, that's good. I, I like when that happens. Um, one thing about this this race now between uh, Tottenham and Arsenal, it's kind of crystallizing. Manchester United are still kind of a part of it, but it feels like it's going to be these two that duke it out. Uh, Jonathan Woodgate said on the BBC that finishing fourth is like a trophy for these two clubs. Oh, God. Um, and I wonder, I don't think he said it, like there will be people who read that as mockery. I don't think that's how he meant it. I think he just genuinely means this is that important for their futures. For, re- to, to get themselves it, it, into a Champions League, it, it is, it's the importance of winning a trophy. Um, and I wonder if there's something valid to that or if, it is, or if that should be read as mockery. No, it's not, I don't think it's mockery. I, I just, the, the way he said it, like why... Like the finishing fourth is like a trophy is such an old meme. It feels like a decade old football meme and and way of mocking, uh, usually Tottenham supporters, often Arsenal supporters, 
uh, about about finishing fourth and about not being relevant in the title race. But you are where you are at this time of year. And like last season, I can't tell you how joyous it was. Liverpool were out of everything, and they finished uh, they finished in the top four. And that race was was great. And it it felt it feels like an achievement. We don't have to call it a trophy, but you can call it an achievement or something worth aiming for. I mean, you people can mock it if they want in Liverpool City or, I or Chelsea last fans. Season. But like I'll tell you right now, it's how I feel as a Spurs supporter. If they do this with with Liverpool and Arsenal still on their fixture list, if they figure out a way and come back from doing this after having fired a manager earlier this season, like to get to this point, um, it will feel that way. Now, like I said, if you know fans above them in the table want to laugh at that and make fun of it, okay, fine. And by the way, it should feel that way for Arsenal too. And that is no slight on Arsenal. Think of the way their season started, how up and down it's been. All, you know, Obama Yang gone to Barcelona mid-season. Like for them to be in this position, uh, I think is is an achievement for them that most people didn't see coming. So if fans want to mock it, they can. But for Tottenham and Arsenal in a season where it did not feel like it was heading this way, like on paper, this was always supposed to be an easy, clear-cut top four. And for Arsenal and Spurs to have kind of broken through that with the help of Manchester United, um, that is an achievement. And it'll be interesting to see how it goes. One final note on this, JJ. uh, Dejan Kulisevsky came off the bench for Spurs, got an assist. I just saw a, a, a stat here that I thought was pretty amazing. So he's played – he was signed in January. He's played in 14 matches for Tottenham. He has eight assists already. That's six most in the Premier League this season. He's, yeah. He's been, been like that, – that trident at the top there of Sun Kane and, and Kulisevsky has just been massive. And, you know, Lucas Moura started the match and did nothing to make anyone think that they were – you know, that, that Lucas Moura was unfairly ousted from that spot. He did not play well, and Kulisevsky came in and was really important. Uh, so. uh, Miguel Delaney is a great piece. There's uh, This is his tweet for the piece. There's never been serious interest in Son, which is remarkable, because he's one of the Premier League's best modern players and certainly one of Spurs. I have said oh. that before. Yeah. and I, I, I don't I, get I, it. I, I don't get it. I'm fine with it, but I don't get I, it. I wonder, is it some kind of... Um, and it's impossible to know. Is it the fact he's Korean? Do we still have these kind of hang-ups about players from that part of Asia? Because I remember... I, I can't imagine that. I remember it being... I, I wouldn't think so either. But it... I mean, as, as Miguel says, Bayern Munich are among the few clubs to have expressed anything even approaching serious interest, which is remarkable given San's output. It is not just that he is so prolific... And, and so productive. It is that he has a personal catalogue of spectacular goals, each one special in different ways. Like, he's, in a, he's been a brilliant player. Yeah. And, but, but, you know, I, I'm not trying to create something here when I ask about him uh, being Korean, being a factor. It's just I do remember a time when English football, and maybe even European football, had a kind of a raised eyebrow attitude to re- recruiting and, and taking in players from uh, from Japan, South Korea. Just a fact. I, I remember I remember a particularly famous commentator when uh, I, I can't remember who who it was. Give me a second there, but it was a Japanese player was playing for um, for Roma. Oh, excuse me, Nakata, and. He was playing against Liverpool in a UEFA Cup game. And the commentator, he was substituted off in the second half. 
And uh, commentator, I'll never forget it, listening to it because I thought that is, that's a bit weird. Commentator goes, and Nakata is uh, substituted off and um, he's done as well as anybody. Anna. Well, like patronizing almost? Yes. Well, like, look, I I don't know. I don't know what the reason is. Look, he, he signed a contract through 2025. So, you know, he, it doesn't, I don't really remember moments where, like, he, he had this contract that was long-term. Uh, that doesn't really matter. Like, players can still say, I want to go. Like, once things started to look like they were going poorly for Tottenham, he could have still said that, kind of like what Harry Kane did. He's never really done that. He seems pretty happy at the club. He, he always has. He's a fan favorite. And in terms of, you know, where he comes from and that influencing interest in him, I almost think the reverse. Mm. Like, we sometimes talk about American players and – whether or not they are appealing for Premier League clubs to have because of the fan base that they attract. If you watch a Tottenham match, like when they scan the crowd, there is always a a very prominent South Korean presence in their stadium. You see the flag, you know, you see his jersey as much as you see anyone else's. Uh, and I would think if you were a big club kind of surveying the situation, you would you would almost like if you were in your meetings thinking about players and like you've got your soccer guys on one side and you've got your marketing guys on the other. And when they come together on these kinds of decisions, it would be like, wait a minute, this guy is amazing. And it could bring in this this new fan base into the realm of our club. Like, I would think it would almost add to his appeal. You know, he, he's very comfortable in the spotlight. Um, personality is is great. Like, I, I don't know. It's always it's interesting that Miguel Delaney wrote that. I'd want to read that piece because it's always it's always been a well, mystery. He doesn't give a real answer for it. Yeah, to be honest. It's always been a mystery to me as well, uh, and I, one that I'm fine with. But uh, yeah, that's that's interesting. That's interesting that he brought that up. Um, finally, JJ, before we uh, take our our break here, we should mention, of course, the status quo remaining at the top of the table as well. We mentioned Manchester City four nil over Leeds, Liverpool, um, Naby Keita gets the winner for them one nil over uh, Newcastle, a team that we talked about last week that had been hot. Um, and so, like, whatever chaos is unfolding beneath them, they, up to this point, have been immune to it. Yeah, very much so. And it feels as if this is going to go, obviously, it'll go to the last day because of the points difference, but that they both teams are going to win out and Manchester City will, will be crowned champions. It just has that feeling because you can't see where either side are going to be beaten. They're just... They're just in a different stratosphere to the rest of the league right now. They're who? Manchester City? Scott? Manchester City and Liverpool. Oh, oh, both okay. of them. So they're gonna both win out and, and Liverpool and City will win win the league by a point. There goes JJ putting up emotional walls to prevent That's his not, disappointment. I mean, like that is that is not an emo- I, I, you you have you been watching games lately? No, not, been, not not a single one. No. Yeah. The, the, these two teams are uh they're Yeah, just, they're they're the they're the two best. And they're it's not miles close. Ahead of and it's not else. close. I'm not saying that that can't change, but but they're just they're in a different. They are literally in a different league. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It's. I mean, well, this is a conversation for another day. But like, this era of Liverpool is going to be judged so strangely. I mean, obviously they have a Champions League trophy to show for it, um, and maybe another one still to come. We'll see how the rest of this Champions League plays out. But like. Yeah, and the Premier League title, but like this is, like they don't they haven't put together the resume of of trophies like a collection of trophies that you would think would constitute one of the great eras in the Premier League. But 
But then when you look at them and watch the way they've played and seen how successful they are, I feel like they have to be considered in that group. They're one of the great great Liverpool teams of all time, but they're also up against one of the great English teams of all time too. Yeah. It, it's they've crossed the the streams have crossed at the same at the same point at the same path, and um, there's been you know it's there's nothing really Liverpool can do about it. Uh, City put in place a plan to build this super club to have the best resources, knowledge, manager. Um, and system that they possibly could, and they have the backing of a country to do it. And they went and they did it, and Liverpool had to compete with it. And I think they've they've done extremely well to do it. And it's been there's only been a point separating them for the last what three seasons, is it? Over the course of that, um, it's, they've been neck and neck. And, Incredible, yeah, yeah. Uh, one trivia question for you. It's a tough one, but I I think you could get this. Uh, Fernandinho now holds the record for a Brazilian for most appearances in the Premier League. He, he made his 260th Premier League appearance. He's now number one among Brazilians. Whose record did he break? Ooh. Premier League Brazilian record. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I, I guess it has to be Willian. That's right. right. That's right. And then Bobby Firmino is in there somewhere. And then I'd say there's a fair fall off from that because we've had lots of, we've had Brazilians in the league before, but mm-hmm. you know some of them for definitely not for as uh, extended a period as those three. Yeah. Uh, so there you go. Props to Fernandinho. Well deserved, I would say. That makes that makes sense to me that he would have that record. Uh, so there you go. Let's go ahead. Let's take a break, JJ. When we come back on the other side, we got to talk about Real Madrid. Uh, we got to talk about some things in MLS, CONCACAF Champions League final. What a, what a first leg. Uh, Nashville opening up their new stadium. Uh, still, uh, still a little bit more to do, so don't go anywhere. Oh, back now on Caught Offside. JJ, we started this podcast talking about my birthday. One of the interesting things about this show is that both of our birthdays fall in very close proximity. Yours is coming up just like a few days from now as well. And I know how excited you are. Yeah, I'm absolutely dreading it. It's, uh, I, I don't want to talk about it. Wow. I can't talk about it. <laughs> so you're one of you're I like see that, the huh? end. I see the end in front of me. Death is no longer a specter, Andrew. He visits with me. Oh my God! We are. No, I'm joking. That's way over the top. I take that. I take that all back. That's yeah. way over the top. I'm turning forty, and it's a scary moment. Yeah, I know. I can't even hearing you say that you're turning forty is hard. It makes me feel old just knowing you. Yeah, because I am fresh faced. I'm youthful. I'm vibrant. I feel you weird know? being thirty-eight. Like I don't think either of us. Like I still feel like I'm absolutely. I feel like I'm in my twenties. I don't know I if would, that's good I, or bad. I would tell our younger listeners. Uh, I feel great. You know, things are good. Uh, I have I mean, a don't talk knee. to me like you're in your 80s. Like, look, I yeah. feel great. I'm taking it day by day. <laughs> and, you know, the Lord's blessed me with a lot of great things, so I should just be happy. No, it's it's not that. But you, um, yeah, you, you you don't know where it goes, Andrew. You don't know where <laughs> it goes. You are darker than me. I'm sorry. You are a darker person than I am. <laughs> yeah, because... There's this notion 
uh, that were all a bunch of happy leprechauns running around drinking and making jokes. All right. and, oh, isn't it great? What is going on? What is happening but, to you? But the fact of it is that as Irish people, there's a darkness there. We the the gift of the gab is only hiding the things we don't want to tell you. And I'm scared, Andrew. I'm scared. What is this all for? What does any of it mean? Hopefully I'll have a nice birthday party, maybe. I don't know. Fair enough. Uh, let's just do a little rapid fire stuff from around the globe, JJ. And let's start in Spain, where Real Madrid captured their 35th La Liga. Could you do it quickly, though, Andrew? My bladder is filling up, and I think I've cracked my hip. Oh, you want me to pause? Fix that hip? Uh, Real Madrid. And I got another trivia question for you. Let's just let's just keep going. So uh, only this club has more domestic titles than Real Madrid's thirty-five among Europe's top five leagues. Glasgow Rangers. Among Europe's top five leagues. Glasgow Rangers. Don't you dare! Don't you dare have a go. Among uh, Europe's top five leagues. Uh, don't know. Juventus, thirty-six. So Real Madrid are right on. They're knocking on that door. They're knocking right on that door. And I bet you Bayern Munich are knocking on it pretty hard, too. <laughs> um, this is interesting for Real Madrid. They have We have talked about this repeatedly. We can't really, like, this idea that there's some kind of down period happening here. Um, I think that they've kind of, they've kind of, like, taken that narrative and thrown it in the garbage. No, they haven't. But they have, though. Like, it's not, it's, they, they've it's won no the longer league, fair Andrew. to them to, like... If you want to harp on the loss to Barcelona, yeah, that was an ugly no, moment of their season. Ha- but like, what? what else? What else can they do? Why they, do you they just, always because they just dominated their league. They've got arguably the best player in the world right now on their team, and Kareem Benzema. And you can question that, but he he's the leader in the clubhouse for Ballon d'Or. They got a rapidly emerging top three young player on the planet in Vinicius, eighteen goals, fifteen assists this season. And if like we want to say, well, it's a down year for La Liga. Yeah, I'll give you. I'll concede that Barcelona right. are not Barcelona. But like Atletico Madrid are still that same team, and if you want to say yeah, but they're they're struggling too, so I don't I don't accept that either. Well, what Real Madrid have done in the Champions League has to count for something. Beat Inter twice, beat the super team of PSG in the round of sixteen, beat defending champions Chelsea in the quarterfinals, and right now as we stand here, they're toe to toe with the best team in the world that you have said can't be touched, and that's Manchester City. So like, at a certain point, we kind of have to say, oh, maybe maybe we underestimated how good they actually are. They've got really good aging players. They've been able to put a good cup run together. They have got some fabulous young talent. They have a fabulous young talent, a really serious talent that's in the side right now. They've got a a striker in unbelievable form. They've got a player who's rolling back the years in, uh, in Modric for as much as he possibly can at whatever age he is, 36. Yeah, okay, fine. But like... They've had they've strolled to this league title. Apart from the four right. Clasco Clasco defeat, they've won every La Liga game since early February. Only challengers most of the way in, in, in spots were Sevilla. It's not been a it's not been a good year for La Liga. And you know, you, you can a team it's okay to say and Manchester United did this many years. Chelsea did it a couple of years too. It it's okay to say, well. You know, that's a good team. Haven't they done well? And also say, well, hang on a second. The league's not that good. And it's not that good this season. No, it's not. But but then, like, their, champ- you want? But yeah, their but Champions almost- League results then have to count for something. Like, you fine, fine. It. It, was a da- it was a down year for La Liga. But, like, we thought it was a down year for Real Madrid, too. But they but said, all right, we, we, bye, everyone. We, you can all have a down year. We're going we're gonna to go ahead and waltz to this title 
and then we get talk, to the semifinals of the Champions League. Jeez, we talk, yeah, but we talk about those are two separate things. We talk about how they've um, they, they could end this season having had a fabulous season, absolutely, Andrew, and and we can they'll have won the league, and God knows they might win the Champions League. But you can still say, you know, that's a flawed team that won that. That wasn't a look how close they came to come out going against PSG. They should have been gone. Should have been gone second leg against Chelsea. Chelsea, I'd say Chelsea are still haunted by what happened there. And Manchester City the same way. How did they concede three at home when they should have scored six? Oh, that happens. That's football. But you have this unbelievable, like the narrative is thrown in the bin. They could still, they could win the Champions League and they could win the league. And we could still look back and say, not a great team, but wow, mm. what, what an achievement. Well, you'll say that alone. All right, I'm happy to do it. You'll say that alone. I've this is a, there's nothing wrong. I, 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 we did a whole podcast on this muscle memory that Real Madrid have in the Champions League, how they're able to just manage it perfectly, and they've got a manager who, who knows how to do it okay. at that well, level. That all counts, right? For how good a team is, and like, look, you're not wrong in talking about their age, but I'm not. But this isn't a discussion on what they're gonna be in you two years. A, no, I'm, like here, I'm right now, whatever how whatever age those players are, they're still they're still performing at a prime level. Most of them. No, I'm talking about I'm I actually I've stopped I think some while ago talking really about Real Madrid. I'm talking about old uh, swingy Andy. No, like swingy where, what? I, by no, the way, I I I was in on Real Madrid. What was that article that you brought up that I said they should be offended? What was it? Uh, Back um, during the early portion of the Champions League, oh, I can't remember yeah. it now. Maybe, yeah, one, of, maybe one of our animals will remember. Right. I don't think I've been swingy, Andy, which no, is not no, a nickname no, I care not for. Not just on this, you, you, no, but you like just because, like the narrative of of a Real Madrid in, in some kind of decline is it, it doesn't it, these results don't mean that 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 long term or that isn't true or that they haven't been able to pull results out of the sky this this season. They absolutely have. But there's nuance to it. Like it's not like all right, everything we've said now before that doesn't count. Get rid of it. They've proved us all wrong. No, they haven't. Hmm. Uh, you can still win and be flawed. No, look, I'm not telling you that they are Man City or even Liverpool, but I think that they could they could count themselves as being still one of Europe's elite teams. When I, I think look, a lot of people said that they're not in that tier. I can't. The moment this weekend, the moment when uh, Real Madrid knocks City out, Pep has got his head in his hands, and I'm going to look like the fool because of what I've said right now. You are going to be the king, Andrew. But um, we have to. We're going to find out this weekend, or this week. Um, this week, sorry, yeah. excuse me. Excuse uh, for um, a couple milestones worth mentioning in conjunction with this, Carlo Ancelotti with an incredible achievement. Um, he becomes the first manager to win titles in all five top European leagues. Uh, congratulations to him. And Marcelo wins his 24th major title with Real Madrid, breaking a tie with club legend Francisco Dento for most in club history. That's unbelievable. Marcelo really to, is. Uh, been a part and, of all uh, those. About Ancelotti, he said, I'm full of pride to win the five big leagues. I can say I like what I do, and this means I do it pretty well. That so. must have been a tough visual for Everton fans. Even in the midst of their glory with the win over Chelsea, like Ancelotti with that, the picture of him with the cigar in his mouth celebrating the win. Like Everton, you you felt the tide turning for Everton fans, just like how down they were when he left. 
Yeah, but I, I think Everton fans, you know, Ancelotti had unfinished business from his last term. His unfinished business was the league. Um, and I think a lot of Everton fans really knew at some point when a big club club came calling, like a big European club, Ancelotti would be gone. Yeah, I think they always knew that. They just probably uh, hoped it wouldn't happen that quickly. but Maybe. But they were also bad under Ancelotti. They were just not this bad. Yeah, and I don't think... And had he stayed, they I don't believe they would have been this bad. Mm. But we'll never know. Uh, so congratulations to Real Madrid, one of the global elite. Uh, JJ, everything to play for in the second leg in the CONCACAF Champions League final, Pumas and the Seattle Sounders, the first <laughs> leg was insane. Uh, 2-2 is how it ends. That barely tells the story. Three penalties with VAR reviews. Um Seattle coming from two goals down in the second half. Nico Ladero converting two penalties. Uh, the Ladero Talavera, Alfredo Talavera, the goalkeeper for Pumas, their little like back and forth on these penalties was fun to watch and had to be extremely satisfying for Ladero to have converted both of them. Um, this is this is fascinating where this is heading. So Seattle now come home for the second leg. Uh, it's already been announced. They've the ticket sold has gone over the sixty thousand barrier, which for them, oh which for them is a key number because in their history they've gone over sixty thousand tickets sold uh, eight times. They have never lost. Seven wins, one draw. The last time was the MLS Cup final against Toronto that they won three one in twenty nineteen. They will they they will look to keep that streak going. In terms of the football, though, you know the. There wasn't much in it in the possession stakes. There wasn't much in it in terms of, you know, the passing movements and moments. There was nothing in it in terms of shots on target. So, Well, two this, things stood out to me. What? The first one that I wanted to say, I got one for each team. Uh, the first one is props to Christian Roldan because that guy got kicked all over the place in that game. I think he drew five fouls. It was they they were There was clearly a plan for Pumas to be physical with him. And it paid off. The last one drew the penalty when he got kicked in the in the leg in the box. Um, so like he hung in there. That he must have been sore. I would think waking up the next morning. That was that was a shift that he put in. And then the other one. Look for us. A lot of this focus is going to be on Seattle. We're here in the U.S. We're we would like to see an MLS team do this. Um, but it's got to be mentioned. If Pumas win this thing. We'll see what happens in the second leg. But if they win and it's it's a narrow margin, I hope people don't forget the save that Talavera made on Raul Ruiz Diaz in the 51st minute of the first leg. That was leg. amazing. Because it was incredible. And it, it was one of those where you ha- we talk about this on this podcast many times, where a keeper makes a save that doesn't compute at first. You're, you're waiting for the net to rattle in some way. It was one of those uh, where a cross was played into Rui Diaz, and he he got his foot on it. Like, he made good, clean contact, and Talavera just read it beautifully and got his hands on it uh, off Rui Diaz's foot from point-blank range. And it, I was sure he had scored, but he didn't. So it's kind of one to, you know, you're going to the second leg. A lot of new things are going to happen. It's going to erase a lot of our memories from the first leg. But, like, try to keep that one tucked away if this thing stays close throughout of just how important that save might turn out to be. Uh, so I'm excited for it. I'll say this, it's like if you if you you want this to feel big, and for me it does, like we're soccer people. Like we're in we're in that community. But like JJ, this is silly whining about this, but whatever. I'll whine to you, and if people want to roll their eyes, they can. Like tucking this away at like ten o'clock 
Eastern time on a Wednesday yeah. night. Like, yeah, it's not good. Who's that helping? Here? No, <laughs> like, it's not good. It's the, and this is a competition that really could. It, this really is could this be, has got to be on a weekend. It just does. Got, yeah, I think. I and also should it be should it be two legs? I think it should be a one leg neutral venue. Uh, like a like a final. I wouldn't I wouldn't fight you on that. I'm okay with each with each team getting to have you know their crowd for one leg of it. Um, I suppose I I, but, I guess, but I wouldn't yeah, fight not, you on it. No, I guess the broadness and the well. Here's the thing: if it was put in a neutral venue, Pumas with their the ability, well, there's just so many uh, Mexicans, Mexican Americans everywhere that they'd be able to get there en masse. Mm-hmm. And it might not be the case that it would be so easy for Seattle fans. Yeah, so I'm sure I, MLS fans, MLS wanted this. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, so I'm I'm okay with you know with that being the case. But I I get what you're saying. Um, but I don't know. Like to me, this like make it feel bigger than like than that. Get the time right. You're right. Put it on a weekend, eight o'clock, or if you want it earlier, so it's not competing with some primetime stuff, whatever. But like. This this is not a lot of people who like soccer but don't love it are going to miss this and they'll just see it uh, on the headlines the next day like that's just the the reality of it. Uh, a couple more quick things, JJ. Uh, Nashville opened up their new stadium with a one-one draw against the Union, and I saw a tweet. I guess this could qualify as my best tweet I saw this week. Um, I like this tweet from Ryan Rosenblatt. He said the best thing about Yotus Park is it seats thirty thousand plus. MLS teams continuing to build 18 to 22,000 stadiums is a combination of a lack of ambition and price gouging their fans. Build big, build for a growing fan base, and price it for as many people as possible. Nashville nailed that. I like yeah. that point. I think it's a good point. the The field looked good. looked like a looks like a nice stadium. But is it just me, or do a lot of these soccer specific ones, Cincinnati, Austin, Nashville, they all kind of look the same? There's to a me. little bit of a cookie cutter thing going on here. Do you think so? Yeah. It doesn't mean that they there's anything like- wrong with like it, this is not like like people will have this association with cookie cutter stadiums of the 70s when it was like Riverfront Big Stadium bowl. in Cincinnati, the Vet in Philly, um Three Rivers in Pittsburgh. Like they're all the same and they're all just bleh. like it's not like yeah. that. These are all nice. But yeah, there's not like it doesn't feel they feel a little bit similar interchangeable in some ways. I mean it was it was beautiful. Like I think they all look really good. And I bet you there isn't a bad seat in, in the house in those places. Agreed. Really, yeah. So um, I, I thought, just going to the game, mm-hmm. I thought Nashville should have been 3-0 up at oh, halftime insta- inside their new stadium. Really give the fans something to cheer about. Like McCarthy, Mukhtar, Moyle, Lovitz, all should have scored. Yeah, Moyle in particular had one where I was – Andre Blake made a save on him. That he was, he that, threw that his was leg of, out, and I was yeah. just again, that was an amazing save. Boy, in fairness, it really some was. of the goalkeeping that we this weekend with Blake. I just mentioned Talavera from last week. Pickford, like this was goalkeeping was on display in in many different countries over the course of this past weekend. But yeah, Blake was he was spectacular. It was the Union that scored the first goal. Mikhail Ur uh, scored for Philly to put them up. But here is what Nashville's first goal sounded like. They won a penalty. One of one of the rare handball in the box penalties where there is. No argument from anybody on any side of this. Like, every handball in the box is like, ah, I just don't know. Whatever they call, I don't even know. This was like, yeah, handball. Let's let's all continue on with our days. That one was obvious. And then history made the first uh, Nashville goal in the new stadium. Randall Lyall with the penalty. 
potentially a moment of Nashville history in the making. Randall Leal via the goalkeeper's gloves. Nashville with their first home goal at Geogis Park are off and running. 1-1, the final. You know, I was talking about Blake. He was probably disappointed. He probably would have thought that he should save that penalty. He dove right. He just got a bit and- higher. He didn't get his, – his arm was just a bit elevated. But it, it, it's a very good penalty still because it's so low and hard. And, I mean, if you forget all the fancy techniques from, from penalties and just focus on what you should do, that's why those penalties mostly go in because they're really hard for the goalkeeper to get to. Yeah even if he makes a good attempt. Before we get off MLS, Andrew, um, Sebastian Ferreira from the halfway line for Houston Dynamo yeah. in the uh, in the Texan derby against Austin. I know they, they ran out uh, losers 2-1, um, Juicy and Pereira scoring for Austin, but it was such a great effort, such a good um, heads-up play, I believe some people call it, uh, to just spot the keeper and, uh, and pick him out. And... Uh, I know the keeper looks a little bit embarrassed, flailing like a landlocked fisherman in the net. But um, yeah, it was uh, it was a very good goal. Sometimes wonder if those could happen more, but players kind of choose not to do that. Choose not to take uh, they, those shots. It's the technique. It's the technique thing of it. In that um, players players see it and they go for it, and then they usually shank it a bit, you know, because it it happens more often than you think. They just don't come off. Right. Players go for it quite a lot. Do you have a favorite? Like one that you remember uh, a midway goal from oh, the halfway? Oh, wow. Let's give you my top three midway goals. So You just have three, it at the ready. It's like you were waiting for someone to ask. Like you've been walking I, around for weeks hoping. I, I don't. I just I just know the ones I really, <laughs> really like. Um, I'll, I'll give you three and an honorable mention. Uh, one is Xabi Alonso. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Liverpool versus Newcastle at Anfield, even though I still think Steve, uh, Stevie Harper falling over makes that goal. If he can keep his feet, he probably keeps it out, but still a very, very good one. Um, number two, uh, from the halfway line, a bouncing volley wide on the right, Naeem in the European Cup Winners' Cup final in 1995 uh, for Real Zaragoza. Um, and he just booms it. And <laughs> uh, uh, David Seaman ends up uh, flailing in the net. Um, like a caught fish. Uh, and, you know, Tottenham fans sing to this day from the halfway line, Naeem, because Naeem, of course, was an ex-Tottenham player. So that was absolutely delicious uh, for them. Uh, and uh, number one, David Beckham, the original, the one that we all remember. Not the original, but the one we, we all remember. Uh, Sellers Park, 1995. Sorry, 1996. Uh, Sellers Park, halfway. Ball rolls he strikes it exactly on the halfway line, catches Neil Sullivan off his line. Absolutely brilliant. Magnificent one. And this wasn't the halfway line, but it was center circle-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, you'll have to help me, Matty Taylor, uh, his volley, which I know you love, for Portsmouth, um, where the ball just pop, bounces up, and he catches it on the full volley. I know it's not a halfway, but it's a long ranger. Um, so those are my ones. I'd like to throw uh, – I'm trying to find exactly where it was to ensure that it was from the halfway line, but Carly Lloyd's in the World Cup final. Definitely wasn't the halfway, but it was okay. It was far, far out. Close. It had to be close. Well, do you think it was close? I'd have to look at it again. Maybe. Yeah, I'm just uh, – yeah, maybe. 
I, yeah. I, I definitely don't want to say Carly Lloyd didn't score from the halfway line because I feel like she's listening and I'd, I'd hear about it. <laughs> so I'm looking at a still shot of it. Right. I'm, I think like it might literally be on the halfway line. Oh, that could, like I think it yeah. might be right on it. It's cl- it's very close, close enough that it, we could submit it in this conversation, and no one would think think you know that what that one doesn't count. No, get out of here. It counts. That might be my number one. Actually, I was gonna say I'd like the Zabi Alonso one too. What and some of the goalkeeper ones sometimes, I don't know, like they're they're kind of fluky. Like Tim Howard had the crazy one in the wind. Oh, complete um, fluke. Yeah. But they're in, they're fascinating when they happen. Uh, finally, JJ, we did want to mention the uh, the passing of soccer super agent Mino Raiola, who died over the weekend at the age of fifty four. Um, he had been battling an illness, and erroneously, reports of his death surfaced a couple days prior. At which point, a statement went out from his own Twitter account, which which I believe was from him, yeah. uh, denying it, expressing some some anger as you a lot understand. of anger, yeah. Um, but then, sure enough, a couple of days later, he did succumb. Um, very sad, and he leaves behind, uh, I would say, a, a interesting and maybe a, a complicated legacy. The fact that we know who Mina Raiola is, George Mendes, um, Kia Jarabshin is is uh, is is one of the amazing things that's come out of the last few years in football. We know who these these kingmakers are. Mm-hmm. Um, I they weren't they weren't universally beloved, certainly not by football clubs, um, because of the power that they wielded. Um, but I when I think about Raiola, you know, I heard an interesting conversation about him on Off the Ball in Ireland, and um, uh, Daniel McDonald, the journalist, was saying how he was a you know a self made man. You know, he saw the opportunity. He kind of saw the grotesque amounts of money in football and, and he got in on it. And and these super agents, like they, they created this this thing for themselves. And um, Adam Bate wrote at Sky, perhaps the name of Roderick Turpin means little to you. He was a Dutch footballer who made a handful of appearances for Ajax in the 1990s before moving on to the Grafschap and drifting out of the professional game by his mid-20s. No matter. That one transfer had already set him up for life. Turpin revealed as much in his own account of the deal. In an extraordinary act of brinkmanship, his agent had walked out in negotiations with de Grafschap, then as now an unremarkable Dutch team. They demanded they match Turpin's salary at Ajax. Surprisingly, the club agreed, even throwing in bonuses. Impressive work before you find out that the figure his agent claimed Turpin was earning at Ajax was pure fantasy. That agent was Mino Raiola. So he got started in Dutch football where he moved He moved to Holland. And um, he just had this, this way of making, like, from what I could see, his, you know, Paul Pogba, Erling, Braut Haaland, they all really like him. Mm-hmm. And he had this amazing way of, of making a lot of money for them and a heck of a lot of money for himself as well in in, in uh in agents fees. I mean, the 41 million pounds sterling reportedly he got from the transfer from Manchester United for the transfer of Paul Pogba back there is one of the great acts of uh, looking after yourself that I've ever heard of. Um, But uh, in that conversation I was listening to, Dion Fanning talked about how agents became the go-to guy for footballers for everything they needed. And he told the story how 
Remember Mario Balotelli uh, when he had the fire at his house, Andrew? Mm-hmm. When he had a fire at his house in Cheshire, Balotelli called Raiola first. And Raiola told him, I think you should call the fire, the fire brigade. <laughs> but this, you know, yeah. no, people say that's Mario, but it's kind but of But it speaks to, to the reliance that, that some of these guys had with him specifically. Yeah, and, and, and also, I suppose, a little bit the trust. Yeah. And th- these figures have just, you know, they're not the... We see them sometimes as, as as the great one of the great plagues on um, on modern football, but they're there because there was so much money sloshing around, and they were able to come in and look after the interests of footballers to a level of care and a level of um, of, of of finance that had never been seen before. They saw the boom times in football and they made sure they got a piece of it, but they also made sure that their clients were looked after. And Raiola is, that's his legacy really, as he, in many ways, changed the game. One of his first transfers was um, Pavel Nedved mm-hmm. from um, Sparta Prague to, to Lazio after having a brilliant um, European championship for the Czech Republic in 1996. And, uh, and then negotiated that massive transfer, which I think was 21 million at the time for Nedved, for Nedved to go to Juventus. And it just snowballed from there. Um, so very sad news. 54 is no age. Yeah. Um, really. We were making jokes earlier about age, but it's a terrible thing. But um, these guys have reshaped um, how deals how deals have been done um, for a long time. And again, another interesting thing that came out of that conversation, Dan McDonald said that the person who drew up um, Keith Gillespie's transfer from Manchester United to Newcastle and who made and who who said that he told Newcastle so that they'd make him a better offer that Gillespie was on more than he was at at Manchester United was Alex Ferguson. So the manager's role over the years, I mean, you know, the managers were involved in the contracts, involved in getting players moved here and there. And that has been completely replaced by, um, by agents. Yeah. Um, here, finally on this, uh, Gab Marcotti on ESPNFC talking about Mino Reyla. Holland, Pogba, Ibrahimovic, Donnarumma, um, Pavel Nedved, the Ballon d'Or winner. The list goes on and on. Um, and he was always so blunt, so larger than life. People criticized him for, for being greedy. He famously, um, as we now found out, uh, received a commission of close to $50 million when uh, Paul Pogba moved from uh, Juventus to Manchester United, uh, and that was a deal, a transfer fee there was about $100 million. Um, but he's always said the same thing. He said, all my clients, if they don't want me, they can just leave. The door is right there. Uh, and yet they all stick with him. And he says, the reason they stick with me is that I don't care about clubs. I don't care about fans, governing bodies, organizations, what people think. I only care about one thing, doing what I think is best for my clients. And, um, and clearly they all responded because all these guys, they could have all gone with other agents and yet they stuck with Mino until the very end. Yep. So, uh, like you said, Mino Raiola, uh, far too young at 54, has, yeah. uh, has passed away. So, Absolutely. Uh, JJ, that, uh, that about wraps it up for this first edition of Caught Offside. We'll be back probably Thursday morning with a, uh, a bonus podcast for this week in the wake of the two Champions League second leg semifinals that are still to be played. Um, they should be interesting. More, the Man City-Real Madrid obviously will be the uh, 
the marquee of of the two. It would um, really talk, it would talk, stun me if Liverpool. I know Liverpool weren't great in that first leg, but that those two minutes from hell for Villarreal, um, I would think would be enough to get Liverpool through. I but, think uh, I think so, but it's going to be interesting on a podcast where we talked about the influence of crowds and at both Leeds and Everton and what they do and the role they play. It's going to be interesting to see what the the yellow submarine is like on uh, tomorrow night. Oh, oh my goodness. Absolutely. Uh, that fan base, I mean, we saw what they were like at Anfield, even at the full-time whistle where they had just lost in, you know, somewhat disappointing fashion. And they were, I mean, they were full-throated and, yeah, passionate as ever. So, yeah, that will be an incredible scene. Should be fun. Should be a, another fun midweek slate. I mean, Champions League semifinal and the CONCACAF Champions League final second leg. So, um, a lot of good stuff that we'll uh, we'll parse through Thursday morning. JJ, I hope uh, this birthday week for the two of us is is a successful one, a fun one, and um, no more vomiting. That's my goal for the week is to not be thrown up on for a third it's time. It's a it's a noble noble aim. Yeah, and a pretty as far as birthday wishes go, I think that is setting the bar about as low as you can. Like when you Sums blow out you the can, when you when you blow out the candles and your wishes, I just don't want to be thrown up on for a third time this week. Andrew's uh, Andrew's statement at his birthday. Just just don't puke. <laughs> uh, this was fun, man. To you, I say. Take you later, fun boy. See you later. Take care. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast. 